From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father John Tregilio. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, we'd love to have you. The number to call is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 1- 205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Ace McKay handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may get to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Monday, Father John Trujillo. How are you? How are you? Terrific, thank you. Uh, Steve writes in, why did they eliminate the season of Septuagesima from the church calendar? <laughs> well. <laughs> Which begins Sunday, by the way. Yes, uh, you can still celebrate Septuagesima. It's just liturgically in the, what we call the uh, ordinary form or the Novus Ordo. Vatican II Mass, however you want to call it. Uh, we don't designate like they did in the Extraordinary or Tridentine uh, liturgical uh, schedule. We have the beginning of Lent with Ash Wednesday and then the first Sunday of Lent. But in preparation for Lent, in the Extraordinary form, you had uh, Septuagesima, Sexagesima. Uh, these were preparations for the season of Lent. And just like uh, Rogation Day and Ember Days were very prominent uh, in the old liturgical calendar. There's nothing preventing you or I from individually celebrating it, but in terms of liturgically uh, at Mass, uh, the preparations uh, were limited to the particular rite we're in. Just as somebody who's in the Eastern Catholic uh, Church would have to follow the, the liturgical calendar uh, of, of that discipline. Uh, Jim would like to know, how are we meant to understand the terms binding and loosing in the Gospel of Matthew? Well, it's. I think the context is clear from what Jesus says. Whatever you declare bound on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you declare loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. So that whatever uh, gives you the context that it gives uh, the Pope a full authority. Now, in terms of his teaching authority, uh, he enjoys the charism of infallibility, but those are only in matters of faith and morals, and he must explicitly manifest that he is teaching as a supreme pastor and teacher of the church and binding in conscience to all the faithful. Uh, he also has full uh, disciplinary legal authority uh, by canon law, again from the binding and loosening, but this is, has nothing to do with his infallibility. These 
decisions that he makes, which while they're, um, they are to be obeyed, um, somebody could personally disagree with it, but you still have to comply with it because that's part of uh, what we call papal primacy, his authority uh, to run the church. But his authority to teach is where he can, uh, and this doesn't happen all the time, but he can invoke um, his papal infallibility. And ex cathedra statements, uh, we've only had two so far, Pius IX on the Immaculate Conception and Pius XII on the Assumption. We also have the ordinary uh, papal magisterium, like we see in Pope Paul VI, Humani Vitae, and uh, John Paul II's um, <coughs> uh, statement that only baptized males can become priests. Those are instances of teaching. In terms of authority, the Pope can, in fact he does, decide who becomes a bishop. He can also remove someone uh, from the office of bishop. It's not an invocation of his infallibility, but it is that supreme authority to bind and loose. So it's more than just a very narrow interpretation. It expands, expands on those three areas, the Christ, the, the priest, the prophet, and the king. So in terms of the sanctifying office, teaching office, and governing office. Again, if you'd like to be part of the program, give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. Still a couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Mel writes in, how can one know for sure that the Bible teaches that the Catholic Church is the one true church? Well, we can we, we can and do um, understand that because of what we just mentioned about the papal primacy. Uh, Jesus says to Peter in Matthew's Gospel, you are Peter, and upon this rock, um, the Petros, I will build my church. So he uses the word church, uh, he identifies it as his, and he builds it upon uh, the ministry of Peter and his successor. So the one church that still exists today, which has a direct lineage, the successor of St. Peter, is the Bishop of Rome. And we've had that unbroken chain uh, for over 2,000 years. And although it's not stated as a simple sentence, the Catholic Church is the one true church, by pure logic, if Jesus founded the church, his church, on the rock of Peter, who is the successor of Peter? It's the Bishop of Rome. Uh, other people have had uh, patriarchs. We've had Constantinople, Jerusalem, Alexandria, Antioch. Um, later there would be Moscow. Uh, but the one Bishop of Rome remains supreme uh, Roman pontiff. And really any Christian who, who has doubts about that need only do a little exercise on tracing the lineage of whatever church he goes to, huh? Yeah, if you, if there, I saw a chart one day on, on uh, Facebook. It was very interesting. It showed you the founders of the other uh, Christian denominations, like Martin Luther with the Lutheran Church, Henry VIII with the Church of England, uh, the Catholic Church was founded by Christ, because like we said, it's in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, it wasn't founded by Constantine, as some people allege. It's Jesus saying, I will build my church and on the rock of Peter. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Robert asks, before a saint is canonized, can we ask someone who is dead to pray for us if we don't know if they're in heaven with God? I know yes. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. This is what we call uh, the teaching 
of the communion of saints, that the saints in heaven, whether they're canonized or not, uh, they're still saints in heaven, and the souls in purgatory, and the living here on earth, all three uh, areas, uh, people can pray for each other. Uh, the only people who don't need prayers are the ones in heaven, but they can pray for us. And although they're not canonized, which is just a, an official church recognition uh, of their status in heaven, nevertheless, grandma and grandpa, all our aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters, moms and dads, everybody who is in heaven is a saint. Uh, it's just that they may not be declared or canonized a saint, which only entitles them to have a church named after them, a, a feast day, uh, and things like that. But uh, anyone in heaven can pray for us, and we can ask for their prayers, just as I can ask for prayers here on earth. Uh, somebody, in fact, uh, someone just asked me today, uh, my uh, friend, my priest friend is having surgery. They're going to put three pins into his ankle and because uh, he fell on the steps a few weeks ago. I said, of course, I'll pray for you. Uh, but I also know that, you know, his deceased father uh, is going to be praying for him as well. Yeah, I have uh, the, the, the deceased loved ones that are close to me. I will, I will pray for the repose of the soul until such time as they're canonized a saint, and I will ask for their intercession until such time as I see them in the other place. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. Just pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. Gene wants to know, why would God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden if he knew that Adam and Eve would eat of it? <laughs> well, foreknowledge is, 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 does not mean that he's forcing it to happen. Um, I, I remember this... Dominican nun, Sister Dominic, was telling us this in philosophy class. She said, if you're in a, a control tower and uh, you're watching the planes uh, for the airport and you see a plane that's going to hit in the ground, you know that's going to happen because you can see it. Your knowledge of it doesn't make it happen. And because God knows uh, already what's going to happen doesn't mean that he ordains that to happen. He permits things to follow a natural consequence a natural uh, logic, a natural order. But Adam and Eve uh, did not have to say no and any more than Lucifer and the bad angels didn't have to say no. But he knew ahead of time that they would. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Carol in North Carolina, David in Louisiana, and we've got plenty of time for your calls. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. I'm going to tell you something. If you're not discovering the beauty, truth, and goodness of the Catholic faith and her church uh, every day, then what are you waiting for? Uh, with the EWTN online learning series, we'll give you that opportunity. You can delve into the riches of the faith and grow closer to the Lord with free, that's right, free videos and study guides. Uh, study guides. EWTN invites you to be still and sit with the Lord 
in the series Through His Sandals. These are online video reflections with EW Chap- EWTN chaplain Father Joseph Mary Wolf. Uh, you can enroll in the course today at learningseries.ewtn.com. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Carol is up first. She is in the great state of North Carolina watching us on YouTube today. Carol, thank you so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Hi. Hi, Father. Um, You are like my favorite. I am just so happy to speak with you today. Oh, you have good taste. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Um, I recently heard, heard a priest say that he thought mortal sin was rare, that most people were just um, creating, do, doing venial sins, and I, that just sounded off to me, because, I mean, look at the world. It, it, it's wacky out there. So I was just wondering what your opinion was on that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. Thanks for calling in. And uh, um, while we don't know how many people are in hell, we know that hell is possible, and the catechism, you know, and this wasn't just in the catechism that was given to us in 1992. It also was in the Baltimore Catechism, the Council of Trent. Churches consistently, perennially taught that a mortal, a mortal sin, all right, can get you into hell because mortal sin, the very term mortal means one, their life of grace dies, uh, sanctifying grace uh, leaves the, their soul, and they need that sanctifying grace restored. And uh, for a Catholic, that must be through the sacrament of penance uh, by going to confession. Uh, the three things, the three criteria for mortal sin: grave matter. I mean, something serious, like one of the seven deadly sins. You must also have full knowledge and a deliberate consent. And if you have all three, it's a mortal sin. If you only have one or two of the three, it's a venial sin at least uh, objectively or subjectively speaking. So if somebody murders someone, they know it was murder, and they freely committed it, that's a mortal sin. And that person is, is in, in bad shape. Now, I can understand where in some cases, like when you're talking about children, they're old enough to receive Holy Communion. They're certainly old enough to go to confession. Uh, are they capable of a mortal sin? Ontologically speaking, yes, but, you know, practically speaking, uh, you know, children, are they able to commit a mortal sin? Uh, you know, that, that's something we, we can discuss, but at least it's, it's ontologically, philosophically possible. Now, with an adult, you're certainly in more control, you're more mature, uh, you're in for, you have more knowledge. Usually. <laughs> yes. I mean, just... Well, just the other day when we heard about that lady that stabbed her boyfriend a hundred times because she was on some psychotic binge from smoking marijuana, she may not have known what she was doing when she was stabbing, but people know before they take drugs or abuse alcohol uh, or drink and drive, there can be very horrible, dire uh, consequences, and that's why they could still be guilty uh, of mortal sin. That's why we shouldn't take it too lightly. So I wouldn't just wave by and say, Nobody commits mortal sin. I wouldn't say that nobody uh, is in hell. Uh, you want to avoid it at all costs, but I'm not going to get into argument of how many people are actually there. Uh, what's more important is I stay out of it myself. God bless you, Carol. Thank you so much for the phone call today. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 
288-3986. You know, Father, they say Lafayette, Louisiana is the most livable city in America. What do you think of that? Lafayette, huh? Wait, <laughs> at least when you're eating a meal, it is. I'll promise you that. David well, is in Lafayette. He's got some seminarians on, from there here. Yeah, well, there you go. He is uh, listening on Sirius XM <laughs> Channel 130. David, you're on with Father John. Hey, hey comment ça va? Um, I, yeah, you say a seminary. My brother, my older brother, who passed away a few years ago. He was uh, in the seminary in Lafayette, Louisiana. Um, he was in there for a couple of years, but failed Latin. So <laughs> this was a long time ago. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I, yeah, I am blessed to live here in Lafayette, and I love it here. Um, I go to a Latin mass in our diocese um, on Sundays, and uh, I do go to Norvis, Novus Ordo masses during the week. Uh, at, there's a church real nearby, so I, I go to both. I love the Latin mass, too. Um, there's a part of the Latin mass. Um, that kind of it, it confuses me, but it doesn't. I'm not sure, and this might be a this might stump you. I don't know. But at the very end of the mass, the priest um, turns to us and says "Ite misa ace," which I know means the mass is ended. But then he goes to the gospel side of the altar and reads the Gospel of John, chapter one, and um, so I always wonder. It's like, well, the mass really isn't over because he continues with the Mass for, uh, for one more reading. Uh, and I was wondering, what, why, why is the Mass ended at that point and not after reading the Gospel of John? Okay, well, that's an excellent question. And um, what we need to do is make a very, very important distinction. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, whose feast day was yesterday, uh, always maintained uh, never deny, seldom affirm, always distinguish. Uh, the the last phrase, as you rightfully mentioned, whether it's the extraordinary form or the ordinary form, uh, the Latin for both, uh, the Trinitine and the, and the Novus Ordo or Vatican II Mass, ite misa est, that's the end of the Mass. Now, in English, we translate it, uh, go, the Mass is ended, but literally, literally translated, uh, ite misa est doesn't mean it's over. Ite is from the, the, the Latin word to go. Misa est means you are sent. The congregation is what's implied. Go, you are now sent. So it's almost like commencement. Uh, I don't know how many times I've heard people speak at uh, commencement exercises. This isn't the end of your education. You're now beginning your, your life as a college graduate. And likewise, at the end of the Mass, in reality is now that you've been nourished with the precious body, blood, and soul divinity of Christ, now you've been uh, enriched with uh, hearing the divine word of revelation, now that you've been filled with God's grace, now you're being sent into the world to do God's work, to do his will. And therefore, uh, the Leonine prayers that were are said at the end of the uh, Tridentine or extraordinary form, uh, it's not, it's, a, it's, it's an addition that was added, that's why, uh, and when they re- reformed the Mass in, in the Novus Ordo at the Second Vatican Council, uh, they removed the, the last gospel, uh, but it wasn't because there was anything wrong with it. Uh, the, the Novus Ordo or the um, ordinary form that, that uh, many people are familiar with, that's just that's where it, it ends, and then there's the recessional hymn. In the uh, Extraordinary or Tridentine, however you want to call it, uh, there are those extra prayers, uh, 
But where the Mass ends, it's technically when the priest gives the blessing and says, Ite Misa Est, or if the deacon uh, says that, Ite Misa Est, that's when the Mass is over. There's just an extension uh, in, in the uh, uses uh, antiquior. God bless you, David. Thanks so much for the phone call today. A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Sean is a first-time caller in Ontario, Canada, watching us on YouTube today. Sean, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Mm, well, thank you, and good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. Um, well, my question may seem controversial, but what was actually controversial to me is that, I mean, the message of the Bible seems missed. So my question is regarding alternative lifestyles uh, and weddings. Mm -hmm. And recently there is a gentleman asked this question, and and he was very clear. He said that um, the person who is having a wedding, an alternative lifestyle wedding, um, understands that because of your religion and your faith that you don't endorse their lifestyle. But it was clear to me, as is, I think, in the Bible, I've gone back and reviewed, and it seems that uh, all of these passages about Alternative lifestyles are bookended by uh, passages about uh, love and compassion. And so I wonder why um, the, the message might be missed to, to many that it's worse if a Christian doesn't go to the wedding, because it's reinforcing this mistaken understanding of hate rather than love, if that explains my question, sir. Yes, I'm glad you called, and that's a, a very good question. Um, that's why uh, it's so important for the people who are not going to go uh, because they don't want to cause scandal to explain why they're not going so that this is not perceived as something in hatred because the person, uh, let's say, for example, uh, it's a co-worker or it might be like a cousin, uh, a neighbor or something like that, and you say, I can't go because... Uh, This is an invalid uh, marriage. This is not a sacramental marriage in the eyes of God. And uh, it it is something that is not sanctioned by the church or in the eyes of God. But I could do that in in a loving way that doesn't condemn uh, condemn the person, but the same token doesn't give um, uh, a green card or a pass uh, to what's happening. Likewise, it's it's not just... uh, if it's a same-sex uh, union, if it's a Catholic marrying outside the church, uh, the same would apply. Uh, if someone is going to do something that's, um, you know, violation of of Catholic law, of Catholic law, if someone wants to get married in the parking lot, I could still be good and kind to them, to the person, and say to them, but I'm sorry, I cannot go to this ceremony because, uh, you know, you're a Catholic and... You know, I respect my faith, my church, and uh, I could do it in such a way that the meanness or the nastiness is hopefully removed. And even if it's not, I still have to express that. What we don't want to do is by our mere presence at something that is wrong, that is something that's especially when is sacrilegious, that I'm giving implicit uh, uh, affirmation that, that I'm thinking that's okay. Uh, it would be like if someone's telling uh, a racist joke and you don't walk away, uh, you don't try to change the subject, you just stand there and smile. Then 
you're giving a thumbs up on something that's wrong. No, uh, as a good God-fearing Christian, like when John the Baptist said to Herod and Herodias, <laughs> you're not, you're not, you're living in sin. That that's not that's your brother's wife. Uh, it doesn't have to be perceived in a mean way. You can do that with Christian charity, but always with clarity. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We still have an opportunity for you to get on the air today. A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up, another first-time caller. Scott is in the great state of Louisiana listening on Christ Our King Radio. Scott, you're on with Father Tregilio. Well, thank you very much. I never thought I'd be making this call, but uh, I do want to express my appreciation for the program. I've been listening to it for many years. Uh, this is my question. Uh, recently, uh, I've discovered that I have an uncle that I've never met. He was born in 1920 and passed away four months after he was baptized. My question is this. Is it safe for me to assume this child is in heaven? Could not possibly have uh, suffered any uh, uh, mortal sins in his life, and uh, since he was baptized, I would think he had a, a clear shot at heaven. Is, is it safe for me to understand this? Well, certainly, if if anyone who's baptized um, dies before they commit a sin, uh, then they definitely would go uh, straight to heaven. Um, Purgatory is only for those who have some temporal punishment due to sin that has not been resolved here on earth. And the the problem is, you know, you just don't know the day nor the hour. That's why what Constantine did is not advisable. He waited to the last possible minute to be baptized. Partly, uh, he knew that it was going to be difficult for him to clean up his act. So, but waiting to the last minute, you're just, you know, you're, you're, you're playing around with explosive things here. So yes, now whether with moral certitude and metaphysical certitude are two different things. You could be confident uh, if someone who you know recently baptized, like when I was a hospital chaplain, uh, I did a few baptisms, uh, whether it was a child, an infant, or an adult, and then the person soon died. Yeah, if, you know, in, in those cases, and we also have the apostolic uh, pardon and blessing for those who are properly disposed. Uh, now, that's moral certitude. Metaphysical certitude, that only occurs when, like when the Pope uh, canonizes a saint, then you know that that's a definite, that's a, in, you know invocation of papal infallibility. But yeah, you could be morally certain, and yet um, I would still say if this was any time it involves an adult or anybody above the age of reason, just for, you know, insurance purposes in, in a sense, uh, Still, you can have a mass offered for the for their soul, because uh, even if they are, and most likely are in heaven, because uh, they died shortly after their baptism, it's not a waste. It's never a waste of time to pray for the dead. It's never a waste of time to have a mass offered for them, even though you may be reasonably certain or hopeful that they're already in paradise. Does that help, Scott? It, it sure does. I have one 
small follow-up question. When a baby dies, um, can, can we expect that that child was mature in heaven intellectually? They don't stay with a childish mentality, do they? Oh, no, that's a good question. And St. Thomas Aquinas, who I just mentioned, whose feast day was yesterday, uh, said speculate. So this is in dogma that uh, when we're in heaven, and especially with the resurrection of the dead at the end of time, that we would more than likely have like a 33-year-old body because that's the age of Jesus when, when he uh, died on Good Friday and then rose from the dead. But certainly once a person's dead, uh, they're not able to receive any more information because their body is no longer there to receive sense information. So it is what we call infused knowledge. And so uh, no one's technically a baby or even an elderly person per se. So you're not going to get forgetful. You're not going to have dementia. Uh, you're not going to be have infantile uh, perception. God's going to infuse knowledge into your intellect so you will know the same things other people know regardless of what your chronological age was when you died. Gail is up next, another first-time caller. You must be very approachable today, Father John. I She's in Omaha, so. <laughs> Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Gail, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Hi, thank you, Father. Hi. I have a question. Um, I'll just make a brief story. When I was 18, I became pregnant, and I had been involved in the Church, baptized, First Communion, confirmation. I called the priest and asked if I could get the classes and everything to get married Catholic, and he said, no, and if you get married outside of the Catholic Church, do not return. I was only 18, and I took it to heart. I raised my children, then Lutheran. It was kind of the only thing I knew to do. I've been married 40 years. Um, to the same man, and I went to try to get myself reinstated as a Catholic, and he was willing to transform, and I went to the first confession, and the Father said, I cannot absolve you because you have not been married in the Church. So I went through the steps to try to do that. I could. No one can find my baptismal certificate. It's lost in space. Um, therefore, I'm not able to continue with the path the priest now told me that if I don't have a baptismal certificate, I cannot get married under the eyes of God in the Church, therefore I can't move forward. There you go, in a nutshell. Wow, okay, well certainly, um, I want you to know I'm praying for you, and uh, and I believe any priest who's worth his salt <laughs> uh, will do everything he can to help you. Uh, if this is the very first marriage for you and for your husband, uh, this will not be difficult, but as you said, if you cannot establish uh, your baptism because for whatever reason uh, the baptismal certificate is missing, uh, are you still on the line? Can you answer this question? I am. Yes, okay. I am. Is the church where you were baptized, is, is it still in existence? Um, you know, my parents both died at 68, and I, I didn't run this past my mother, um, so I do have one aunt that's alive. She said, I remember you were baptized. I don't okay. remember where. And um, I went to the church that I had First Communion, in which they, sh they and confirmation, they should have my certificate there. And um, they said they don't have it because records are no longer kept on paper after a certain year. 
Okay, well, well, first of all, that, that might be the case, but they still have to have access to the information. That is absolutely essential. It's by canon law. So even if they had it microfiched or microfilmed or uh, you know, tr- digitally transcribed, the church that where you were baptized, the church where you receive your communion, the church where you were confirmed should have a record of where you were baptized. Um, the diocese, you know, if you got go to a terrific them, archbishop there, I can't, I have to imagine that the chancery would be able to help there. They could help, but also in, in absence of a baptismal certificate, two affidavits. So certainly your aunt could uh, testify if anybody else was there and witnessed your baptism. Two affidavits are the same, have the same canonical equivalence of the baptismal certificate. But I think the diocese, there, since you were uh, confirmed, since you did receive Holy Communion, those places would have to know, uh, because that's part of the record of where you were baptized. And then a, a certificate can be issued, but in absence of that, you could certainly get an affidavit. I've even heard of cases where, uh, uh, you know, this can be done uh, uh, very easily, but maybe through the diocese. The parishes, for whatever reason, may be dropping the ball or their record keeping system, but the diocese insists on keeping this information available. Uh, that's why they have to be kept in safes, uh, fireproof safes. So, um, you know, I would say go to your diocese, but also if for whatever reason uh, you don't get anywhere with that, um, leave your, your email and uh, I'll see if I can help as well. Thanks, Gail. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Excuse me. Casey is a first-time caller, another first-time caller in Terre Haute, Indiana, listening on Covenant Radio's online feed. Casey, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Howdy, Father John. I appreciate the uh, the call and the time. to set up the scenario, give you a little bit of a backstory. Um, me as a former army chaplain, uh, a, a friend of mine, uh, both Protestant army chaplains, we got out of the service. I continued on to grad school, seminary, and so forth. Um, and he uh, finished his, his demon and post-education, so on and so forth. Um, he's a married man and and came to the Catholic faith. Um after after the service, but he is still being felt called to ministry, even though he's a married man. And your producer mentioned um, deacon, uh, possibly going for for deaconhood, but he has not communicated that to me. The only thing I thought, and I've talked to him about, was uh, uh, perhaps going to the Anglican Church since they're in communion. And I'm just trying to get some other perspectives or or other ideas, and thought you might be able to help. Okay, well, first of all, um, if if he's um, if he was married uh, prior to uh, his conversion, and um, so let's say um, Lutheran or Anglican, and then he's married, uh, becomes a minister, if he converts to Catholicism, uh, there is a possibility of him being ordained a, a Catholic priest as a married man, because he would be married prior to. His ordination, it's not a uh, a fait accompli. Uh, you still have to go uh, through the process. There'll be some formation, maybe not as much as we give to the seminarians. A very dear friend of mine, uh, 
is a priest in my diocese, Harrisburg. Uh, he was a, an Episcopalian priest, and he was an army chaplain, converted and came into our uh, came into the faith and was ordained a priest just a few years ago. In fact, he's going to be joining me and the seminarians on a pilgrimage that we're going to in Rome and Florence uh, next month. So it is possible. The diaconate is also uh, a possibility, but I would say, you know, uh, there's no need for him to go to the Anglican Church, if especially if he realizes, morally speaking, if he knows this is the, the, the true church and this is where God's leading him, that's the way, you know, you need to go. It, it's... Uh, a moral compunction to go to follow the truth, and if the, if he knows that, then that's what he needs to do. But I would say he certainly has more opportunities than maybe he realizes. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. We head to the Republic of Texas. Brian is another first time caller in San Antonio, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Brian, you're on with Father John Tregilio. Good afternoon, Father. Um, I I was visiting a uh, Catholic church, um, and the priest and the deacon were both presiding, and I've never seen this before, and I was just wondering about it. Uh, the deacon uh, gave both the penitential rite and the curie. That, uh, is that okay? Uh, yes, because it's not, it's not the sacrament. Of, of penance or reconciliation or confession, although it's called the confidior and we do say I confess, uh, that part of the Mass, the penitential rite, is not the sacrament of penance. So uh, if there's a deacon, it is proper for him to uh, do that. Now, the priest would start the confidior, I confess Almighty God, or they could have what they call uh, the, the tropes, which would be uh, the, the short phrases, um, there's where the deacon would have his role because likewise, like the deacon proclaims the gospel and the deacon can give uh, the homily, but so can the priest. The penitential rite is not reserved only to the priest because it is not the invocation of the sacrament. So people's sins are not being forgiven. Uh, mortal sins are not being forgiven at that point of the mass. It's a public manifestation of our acknowledgement that we are sinners in need of forgiveness but it is not the sacrament. That's why the, 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 the deacon can participate as he does in, in, that, in that part of the Mass. I think you, you might be asking more about the, the uh, Kyrie than, than maybe the... Well, the Kyrie, yeah, the, the Lord have mercy is just uh, a, a continuation of the, uh, of the penitential rite. Uh, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, or the Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison. Uh, that is just an asking... God to have mercy upon us. So it's a prayer. It's not a sacrament. So the deacon is, in fact, that's he's he's allowed and he's supposed to be saying that uh, in the part of mass. Just like when he says, um, you know, let us give offer the sign of peace. That's his role. He's supposed to do that. Does that help, Brian? Yes, I I, the, I just have never seen the priest not do it and the deacon do it. Some priests are. <laughs> some priests don't let the deacon do it. That's that's the that's the issue sometimes. <laughs> God bless you. We appreciate that phone call today. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. You know we do this program every single day. 
3 p.m. Well, Monday through Friday, anyway. Uh, at 3 p.m. Eastern Time tomorrow on Open Line Tuesday, Father Wade Menezes will be your host, and he'll be talking about the three acts of the penitent for confession. So tune in tomorrow to Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes right here on EWTN Radio. Mark is in New Orleans, Louisiana. Boy, you're big in, New- in Louisiana today, too, Father. He's listening on Catholic Community Radio. Mark, you're on with Father Tregilio. We're waiting for you to come down from Mardi Gras, y'all. Okay. Get that crayfish <laughs> soup ready. <laughs> um, my a simple, simple question, Father. How does a, how does a Methodist, and I, he's Protestant, how would he receive forgiveness? Okay, that's a good question. Since they don't have the sacrament of penance or reconciliation, uh, they have to make a good, a perfect attrition. Uh, just as a Catholic would if there was no priest uh, physically or morally available. So the motivation for your sorrow for sin is not limited to your your fear of punishment, but your more important is that your your sorrow for your sin is because you've offended God who is all good and all loving. So making a perfect attrition uh, would be the way in which uh, a non-Catholic Christian could have their sins forgiven. The only thing is you, you don't have that moral certitude of hearing the word spoken as the priest does in the sacrament of confession when he says, I absolve you. But since they don't have the sacrament, the, the, there, there is a way for a non-Catholic Christian to be forgiven. Uh, they just don't get that the dual benefit of having hear, hearing the words, I absolve you from your sins. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Matt is a first-time caller in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Matt, you are on with Father John Tregilio. Hi, thank you. Um, does the Church recognize divorce um, between two unbaptized persons? And could a Catholic marry... Somebody who, an unbaptized person previously from that divorce. Okay, uh, yes, uh, uh, this is what we call the Pauline privilege. If two unbaptized persons get married and then they get divorced and then one of the unbaptized persons uh, marries uh, a Christian, marries a Catholic Christian in particular, um, then uh, the bishop, because it's, it's called the Pauline privilege, the bishop can uh, grant a, a special dispensation because that first marriage, uh, w- which was a natural bond, was not a sacramental bond. You must both be baptized for it to be a sacramental bond. So two unbaptized persons get married, uh, they get divorced, then one or both of them would be able to marry a Christian for the first time uh, through that Pauline privilege. When you have a baptized person marrying an unbaptized person, then it gets a little bit more complicated. It's called a Petrine privilege, and that has to go through uh, the Holy See, the the Pope, the the Bishop of Rome. But as you described it, if it's two unbaptized persons, then the local bishop can can handle that easily. We've still probably got time to squeeze in another call or two. Give us a jingle at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Kind of following up to that question, Brittany wants to know, what makes a Catholic marriage, and how does it differ from other types of marriages? Okay, well, a Catholic marriage uh, would be uh, a marriage that's a full-blown sacrament in the eyes of God and the eyes of the Church. 
Um, it involves at least one person is Catholic. Um, hopefully it's both, but at least one is Catholic. And the person's marrying a baptized person. And this is the first uh, sacramental marriage for both of them. And for the Catholic, they need to be married by a priest, deacon, or bishop, or get a special dispensation from the bishop to be married by a, a non-Catholic minister, rabbi, justice of the peace, or whatever. Uh, the ceremony must be uh, the sacrament as described in the ritual. So either it's a marriage within the context of a mass or the sacrament of matrimony outside of mass. Um, there must be two witnesses. Um, the witnesses do not have to be Catholic. They don't even have to be a man and, uh, and a woman. They could be two guys, two ladies, because they are merely witnessing uh, the exchange of vows. Uh, the bride and groom both say, I do, or they repeat their vows. Uh, that is the essence uh, of the Catholic ma uh, marriage, that uh, they exchange consent. But the canonical form that they are doing this before a priest, deacon, or bishop, uh, and the Catholic uh, format that this is being done in church with the Catholic auspices, that is what we call a Catholic uh, wedding, a Catholic marriage. Uh, if two other if two non-Catholic Christians get married for the first time, we recognize that, but they don't have canonical form because we don't, you know, we don't impose our rules on non-Catholics because they're not going to follow them anyway. So two Protestants could get married by a JP. We would still count that. Uh, Catholic must always marry according to that form that I just described. So if a Catholic gets married outside the church, uh, doesn't follow the proper uh, form, then that marriage, you know, is considered invalid. Rob is in the Republic of Texas, a first-time caller listening on Guadalupe Radio. Rob, you're on with Father Tregilio. Great. Hey, my question is, uh, I grew up in the early 80s. Nuns were visible. Nowadays, I don't see them. Where are they? What do they do? <laughs> That's a mystery. <laughs> what are, where are nuns? What are they doing? Um, you know, I have to say, you go to Nashville, the Nashville Dominicans, you will see a lot of nuns there, all right? And they're wearing their veils, their habits. Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, you know, the, the sister servants of the Eternal Word, uh, Mother Angelica's Poor Clares uh, in, in, in uh, Hansville, Alabama. There are nuns, there are sisters who wear the habit, and they're the ones who are flourishing. The only thing is you don't see them all over the place because they, they're living in their convents or monasteries. Uh, when I was growing up, and I went to Catholic grade school and, and high school seminary. Uh, there were lots and lots of sisters. They wore the veil, but lots of them taught in schools. Uh, they worked in hospitals. Their orders are declining partially because, you know, they abandoned the habit and uh, their identity as uh, consecrated religious, you know, has has gotten a little, little blurry. The, the orders where they are keeping true their charism to their foundation, their traditions, they are, they're busting at the seams, okay? Uh, now, just because you don't see them, a lot of them are uh, either monastic, that means they're always in the monastery, or they're at least quasi-contemplative. Uh, we have some wonderful sist uh, Carmelite sisters in my diocese of Harrisburg, just up the road from the seminary. Uh, they, they follow the extraordinary form, but they're still fully part of the Catholic Church. So the communities of sisters and nuns who are... Um, more traditional, are doing well. Uh, you just don't see them out in the route in the public because a, a lot a portion of them are are, are specifically 
uh, more contemplative. That means they're going to be praying a lot more in the chapel and not out in the world in active ministry. But things definitely have changed, no doubt about it. I know my wife went <laughs> my wife went from kindergarten through twelfth grade and had two lay teachers for her entire academic pre college career. So not quite like that anymore, unfortunately. Um, next up is Lily in Lincoln, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Lily, you're on with Father Tregilio. Um, yes, I had a question about guardian angels. I'm I'm a pretty new Catholic, so it's all new to me. Um, when I was a child, I was abused, and during the abuse, I would see a glowing light in the room, and I just wondered, could that be my? Could that have been my guardian angel? Oh, it, it could have been. Um, you know, I'm not going to discount the fact that your guardian angel could could manifest uh, themselves. We just don't know. Uh, we know that every person, every human being, regardless of their religion. The moment that they're, they are conceived in their mother's womb, they are assigned a, a guardian angel. Your guardian angel is not there to protect you from all physical harm. Your guardian angel is there to help you uh, fight against um, spiritual harm, sin. Uh, but again, because you have free will, your guardian angel cannot force or compel you, but they can help uh, persuade or influence you, uh, give you some good suggestions, uh, help you with resolutions. But, you know, sometimes people say, well, why didn't my guardian angel stop that from happening? Well, that's not their job. Their job is to uh, advise, to counsel, uh, to certainly help us in the fight against evil and sin. But we're our free own, our own free agents. So it, it could have been uh, your guardian angel, but uh, even if you didn't see any light, you still had one, you have one, and uh, your guardian angel is someone that you should frequently uh, pray to for their their continued assistance you know that that prayer we learned in catholic school about the guardian angel i i still pray myself every day when i go to bed and when i wake up father trigilio would you leave us with a blessing amen on behalf of our host father john trigilio our producer michael mccall call screener matt gubensky and our social media maven mr ace mckay I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Monday. Back at it tomorrow with Father of Mercy, Father Wade Menezes, on Open Line Tuesday, talking faith, family, and fellowship. Until we get together then, God bless.